so Dan, um, probably an understatement to say it's a busy, been a busy couple of weeks. Yes, it has, hasn't it? Just been a really busy couple of weeks. Obviously, on my side, maybe not for the reasons people are expecting. I mean, some some people might be aware, but my wife and I we welcomed our little baby Sasha into the world a week ago, little boy, born last week. So um, that's been keeping me super busy over the last week or so. And how nice to just hear some good news at the moment. I think we're all sort of grasping for that. So congratulations, Dan. Big question from me. How's little Leo getting on with his baby brother? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, so fun fact was that Sasha is born the day after Leo's birthday. So we got two boys on consecutive birthdays, which is quite fun. Leo's two years older. It's a bit tricky, actually. Other, other parents probably can relate to that. The older one doesn't quite know what to sort of make of it all. But it has been really cute seeing them kind of meet each other and, and sort of interacting a little bit. But you've, you've got to sort of think about that a little bit more than, than sort of expected, actually. It's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, fair enough. I suppose he's been used to being the center of attention, hasn't he? So getting used to sharing that. That's it. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. It's, it. it's, um, no, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. But it's, it's, it's been great. Everyone doing well. My, my, my wife, Jules, has been, has been brilliant. And it does really remind you how, how much we owe to the NHS. It's, it's really um, comes to the fore at times like this. It makes us really grateful. I think. Fantastic. Well, good luck. And I hope the sleep patterns come, come through quickly. Yeah, exactly. Well, we seem, we seem to turn the corner a little bit. And I wanted to just jump on here, say hi to everyone and, uh, and, and all that. And hopefully, um, I'll be back back in the office and um, back up to full levels of sleep or at least fully caffeinated in in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Don't want to ignore what's going on in markets, of course. It's not the topic of today's episode, but we are planning a special episode to really get to grips with the ins and outs of what's been going on and and how different market participants have been reacting. So um, look out for that one coming very soon. I guess the only other thing for me to say now is hats off to colleagues, clients, really the whole industry for pulling together at a time like this. Everyone's putting in significantly more hours than they'd probably like to at this point in the annual cycle. So there'll be lots of looking back, reflecting what worked well, what didn't. I think the key thing at the moment is lots and lots of firefighting and a, a huge team effort. So, so well done to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Mary. That, no, that's, that's, that, that's spot on, isn't it? And yeah, really looking forward to trying to pull together a special episode on that. I think one of the issues has been things have been moving so fast, it's been impossible, would have been impossible to try and do anything, wouldn't it? Because it would have been out of date the next day. And there's still a little bit of a risk of that, but hopefully we can, we can try and pin a date at which point we, we think news would at least keep it relevant for at least a week or so where we can, um, we can, we can chat to a few, a few people, colleagues and, and other other folks hopefully and um, have, a, have a good conversation around it because there's, there's lots to discuss isn't there yeah for sure but yeah maybe that's one to listen to quite quickly after it comes out yeah <laughs> i think so reasons. yeah yeah we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll try and do a good job there. good so cool so we've got today's episode really looking forward to this actually we've been talking about sustainable infrastructure and the sort of future of infrastructure investing really with, with james haven't we yeah absolutely so let's get let's get to it let's do it <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week, we are talking infrastructure investments. And joining us is someone who spends a lot of time talking to managers and talking to asset owners about infrastructure. And that's LCP's real assets researcher, James Baldwin. James, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Welcome, James. Could you give everyone that's listening a sense of your role at LCP and what that means in practice? Yeah, sure. So 
as Dad said, I'm a dedicated manager research consultant specializing on real assets. So that covers infrastructure and real estate equity. And in practice, that means I spend my days looking for the best investment opportunities in real assets for our clients, be that new ideas, new types of assets, emerging opportunities in the market, but also the best managers for those investment opportunities. Nice. And we've certainly had some quite interesting conversations as new products come to market and we're trying to work out what could be a good fit for our clients and that sort of thing. Been a lot of change in that space, hasn't there? So we're really keen to get into that. Before we do, James, just tell us what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? So something that's quite interesting about me is that I compete at a international and national level in powerlifting. So when I'm not in the gym, not in the office, I'm in the gym. Yeah, you see, I got that mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) I get those two confused all the time. Yeah, feel really similar, really similar. (laughs) You can decide which of those two I think is more important. (laughs) So go on then, which events or lifts is it? And give us an idea. So powerlifting, um, you do squat, bench and deadlift. And my combined total across those three lifts is 537.5 kilograms, which my mum tells me is far too much to be lifting. (laughs) (laughs) So when you say combined, is that, I'm really confused. So you're doing three separate things and each of them, you've got a certain amount of weight. And you add all of those together, you get to 537. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's exactly it. So does it spread evenly between the three? Presumably different parts of the body are stronger than other parts. That's absolutely right. So most people's deadlifts are their strongest lift. So that's true for me. So that's 230 kilos for me. And then it's your squat, which is 170 for me. And then your bench press is the relatively weakest. And that's 137.5 for me. Wow. And those, those numbers like are big numbers. Yeah. yeah, those are big, big numbers. Big yeah. numbers, yeah. and at the tip of your tongue, you can tell how important this is to you. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> I can't think of any segue <laughs> from the heavy lifting that you do for us on research. Not sure that really <laughs> worked. Yeah, no, no, I thought that was good, Mary. That was a good. That was a good segue. Let's talk about infrastructure. Maybe James, you could give us an update on. What are the sort of new ways that you're seeing managers build infrastructure portfolios? What are the new ideas that are in those? It's a really interesting question. And I think the most exciting things we're seeing managers do in infrastructure portfolios at the moment is what some people are referring to as infrastructure 2.0. And it's a lot of new opportunities that are coming through. And infrastructure 2.0 is probably a bit of a buzzword, but essentially refers to assets which stand to benefit from or contribute to the electrification and digitalization of the economy. And that covers a whole raft of things. So we're talking on the digitalization side, data centers, fiber optic cables, and then on the decarbonization, electrification, we're talking about next generation power sources like bioenergy, hydropower, hydrogen power, and then other things like sustainable transport. So a really fun example of that is an asset in the Nordics, which is owned by one of our bi-rated managers, which is called Norled. And it's a ferry fleet. So in Norway, because of the topography, water transportation is actually an essential part of the country's infrastructure and how people get from A to B. And obviously this asset has really great infrastructure characteristics. So high barriers to entry because it's quite expensive to build a ferry fleet and it's got contractual cash flows with the government. So it's all the great infrastructure characteristics that we know and love. But the exciting thing the manager is doing is it's moving the fleet away from fossil fuels and electrifying them. And then even for long distance ferries, they're moving into hydrogen power and they actually own the first hydrogen powered ferry in the world. This is really exciting for an infrastructure expert like me, because 
it's showing where we're going to be in five, 10 years time. For the manager, it minimizes the risk of those assets becoming stranded as we move towards net zero and also minimizes the risk of any potential carbon prices. But at the same time, there's this really exciting upside because we're starting to see Norled win new business tenders on the merit of having those no or low emission carbon emission fleets. So that's a really exciting and interesting thing we're seeing coming into infrastructure portfolios today. Nice. And when you say, I mean, James, you refer to it as infrastructure 2.0, and it does sound new and exciting and different. I guess, does that mean that what we expect return profile wise as an investor is also quite different? Or actually, do we see the characteristics from an investor's perspective, pretty similar? Actually, it's just the way that that's being generated is changing as the world evolves. It's a really good question. And I think there is a slight difference. When we talk about these infrastructure 2.0 assets, a lot of them are by the merit of them being decarbonization and electrification assets, a lot of them are around power generation, expanding the power grid, new ways to generate power. So we see that these assets tend to have a lot more contractual income. So a good example of that is if you have a solar farm, you may look to enter into a long-term contract that we call a power purchase agreement or a PPA with a counterparty to sell them energy at a certain price that might be indexed to inflation for a certain period of time. So in Infra 2.0, we do see a lot more of those contractual cash flows, whereas in traditional infrastructure, something like airports, seaports, maybe toll roads, you see returns to be slightly more linked to GDP, which can have a lot of upside when the economy is doing well, but when the economy is not doing so well, your returns can be a little bit more volatile. So the slight difference there is maybe in these new types of infrastructure, Expected returns may not be quite as high. They're still very good, but they do tend to be slightly more resilient because they are those contracted cash flows. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that sort of approach has worked pretty well, I suppose. Really, it's the last decade, isn't it, with offshore wind and solar. And that's some of those contractual arrangements reasonably well trodden now. But are you seeing them kind of expand to other areas as well? Is that sort of given the blueprint then to use it for other areas? I do think the wind and solar that we've seen is definitely the blueprint that we're going to see a lot of these assets following as we come into new technologies, sort of the hydrogen, hydropower, biomass, they are going to follow very similar economics to the wind and solar. And it's quite interesting that you you use wind and solar as an example, because some of the pushback we get when we put renewables assets towards new clients, potential new investors is, oh, but everyone's going after these assets today. The return prospects are too low. Why would I invest? And it's exactly this conversation we're having here. Well, the economics is really well known. The way managers can generate returns from these assets is really well known. And as we get in new technologies, more efficient technologies, the returns still are going to be there. I mean, they're not going to be the level they were in the early 2010s, 10 to 15%, but they're still really attractive returns for investors in this area of infrastructure. And how do you kind of balance? Because I always think that there's obviously this question of supply and demand in these infrastructure things. And it's not like a sort of liquid equity exchange where buyers and sellers just meet kind of in the middle. It's much more long term than that, isn't it? It's always a tricky one. And I always think that there's sometimes it's a bit misunderstood whether it's demand or supply that's kind of lacking. But how do you try and get a sense of that, whether there's tons of projects that are crying out for investors or whether there's actually tons of investors who want to put money into a small number of projects and risk bidding them up? It's really interesting. And I think it's actually quite clear cut, at least from my perspective in the current market, that there is huge demand for these type of infrastructure assets. Using some figures that we got from the IEA, we expect that there needs to be $25 trillion of investment in 
electrification, both in terms of power and expansion of the grid in the next decade. So there is this demand for these assets if we are to meet our net zero ambitions. And that money isn't going to come from government. It needs to come from the private sector. So I think there is this huge demand for these types of assets. But not all infrastructure is created equal. And it's down to our infrastructure managers to locate those assets, whether it be those bilateral arrangements where they know developers who are building the assets or in the example of the renewable specialist managers that we know, constructing and developing them in the right places at the right time. And that's where we're going to see that separation between the managers who do well and benefit from the transition and those who are a little bit more middle of the road. We'll definitely come back to the manager point in just a moment. James, I wondered if we could just talk a little bit more about, we talked about characteristics potentially being slightly different for this Infra 2.0. From a risk return and also income perspective, what should we be expecting from these sorts of assets? As I said, the profile of the return is slightly different and it is more driven by income typically. So if we take the example of a solar farm, for example, in that case, managers are often just owning the asset and there's slightly less chance for upside, i.e. selling those assets further down the line. But you are getting the return coming through from those power purchase agreements and the power that you're selling. And that's slightly different to maybe if you think of traditional infrastructure and you have a manager who's owning an airport, there's going to be upside there from making that business run more efficiently, expansions, mergers and acquisitions. So the shape of the returns sometimes can be slightly different. We also see, and it goes back to the point Dan was making earlier, that we are seeing managers actually accessing things like renewables earlier in their life. So rather than owning an operating asset that already exists, already is generating cash flows, they're accessing it at the construction and development phase. And I think that's something that's really exciting and is something I like to see managers doing because it is going to increase the returns for investors because they get what you could call a construction premium. But it places more onus on researchers like me to make sure we're doing our due diligence correctly. And we are having the managers who are a specialist, have a track record and are engaging with the right contractors to build those projects in good time and to a high standard. Yeah, that's really interesting because I always remember, you know, it's going a few years back now, but a lot of infrastructure managers, that would sort of be a bit of a no-no, wouldn't it? They would sort of say, oh, no, no, we don't take construction risk here kind of thing. And I did always wonder about that because you always think, well, okay, fine. But what you're basically saying, yeah, we're just going to take on the asset when it's already working up and running really well, and we're just going to take it off you. And that sounds a bit too good to be true. Do you think there's been a change there in that it's just been the way the world's worked out? It's more need. I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier, is that the economics for solar and wind and the way of building these assets, getting them operational is really well known now. And most of the managers are saying this is actually quite a straightforward project compared to some other projects that we might consider. But there definitely is a balance. I don't want to be going into a renewables fund that is doing solely construction and development. I think that would be too much risk for most of our investors. So I think it is a change that we've seen in the last five, 10 years. And it is because the path to building those assets has become so well trodden. And the last couple of things I'd like to say that is slightly different for these newer opportunities in infrastructure is, as has probably become quite evident from this discussion, is a lot of the assets are based around the energy sector, and you will have a lot of exposure to the power price, or at least more so than you would in a more traditional global infrastructure fund. And over the last year, that's been really good for the managers because as power prices have risen, their assets have done really well. But in different market conditions, that could be something to be a little bit more aware of. And perhaps one of the drawbacks of accessing this type of infrastructure compared to the traditional types of infrastructure that we see in those portfolios. And because these are newer assets, newer technologies, the funds themselves tend to be slightly newer, so slightly smaller. Most of them are around the 
billion pound mark, whereas there are other open-ended infrastructure funds that are sort of 30, 40 billion. So the assets that are in them are slightly smaller, slightly less prominent, and there may also be fewer assets. So it is a little bit less diversified from that perspective as well. But I think two, three, four years down the line, we are going to see these funds growing and having more assets and becoming more diversified. I'm really keen to get to the fund specifics. There was just one thought that sprung to mind while you were talking just before, James. So you mentioned, and Dan remembered, that the construction elements of infrastructure used to be a bit of a no-go. We've talked a bit about how in these newer areas, it's less of a no-go because it's a more well-trodden path and the risk-return dynamics. Have you seen that change attitudes on traditional infrastructure, so construction within traditional infrastructure, or is it only construction within these newer areas that seems to be more of a palatable area to invest? It's interesting. And I would say it is slightly more prominent in these newer areas, but that's not to say that your traditional infrastructure managers aren't doing these construction. It's probably just maybe a little bit behind the scenes. And the reason I say that is these traditional infrastructure funds are needing to transition towards net zero and they're needing to make changes to their assets. So a really good example of that is if an infrastructure manager owns oil and gas pipelines, that stands a huge risk of becoming stranded in 15, 20 years. So they need to be thinking about today, how are we going to be transitioning those assets towards net zero? And that might be well, we need to repurpose this pipeline so that it can carry biogas or biofuel or in the most extreme extent, maybe something like hydrogen. Or it might be saying, oh, actually, we own all this land above the pipeline. Could we use this to put a solar farm on or a wind farm on? And if they're going to be doing that, they're going to need to be taking some development and construction risk. But it's probably just a smaller part of their portfolio or a secondary thing that they're doing. And actually, the main thing they're doing with that asset is using it as an oil or gas pipeline. It's just a different way of thinking about the portfolios and what the managers are doing and what they're kind of majoring on as their differentiating factor. Great chance maybe to just to pick up on some of the specifics of the funds, because I always think this sometimes isn't discussed enough. But talk a little bit about the difference between on your sort of preferences between sort of closed ended private markets funds, open ended private markets funds, and then kind of listed liquid funds. Did you see all of those structures being used? And is there a trend or a preference? For the majority of the clients we're working with, we tend to prefer the open-ended funds. And that's mainly because we like the liquidity mechanisms. So these funds tend to be quarterly or six-monthly dealing, which means that our investors can get in and out as and when they want to. And at the same time, it also eliminates the blind pool risk. So something that we tend to be a little bit more cautious of is when these new closed-ended funds come to market, you're not really sure what assets you're going to be buying into and what that fund's going to be holding in a couple of years time. Whereas when these open-ended funds come, they already have a socialized pool of assets that exists that we can buy into. We can do the due diligence on those assets, understand their risk and return drivers, the diversification. And then we get a little bit more comfortable with recommending those funds for most clients. That's not to say we won't put closed-ended funds forward, but those tend to be in more unique cases. So maybe our charity endowment clients who have a longer time horizon can bear a little bit more liquidity risk. And also maybe they want a slightly more racier return. So in the value add or core plus space, so talking 12 to 15%. In that instance, we might look at a more specialist closed-ended fund. And those value add funds will also be those funds that maybe are taking more construction risk, more development risk, or maybe more technology risk. So they'll be looking at those more interesting types of assets like carbon capture and storage, and maybe in a few years, hydrogen power as well. And then the other side of that is the listed side of the market. And I am a massive proponent of listed infrastructure. I'm a big fan. It's one of the few 
asset classes that has delivered positive performance over 2021. So at 30th of June, the S&P Global Infrastructure Index was up about 11%. And that's because of one, the power price rising, but also the inflation hedging characteristics. And I think I love the idea. And if I was given a blank sheet of paper to how would you go and advise this client, I'd say if you're going in infrastructure, blend listed and unlisted. One of the key bugbears I have with unlisted infrastructure is that it can sometimes take up to a year for your money to get in the ground doing work. And I think by blending listed and unlisted, you can get that immediate exposure. And then as you receive the capital calls from the manager, disinvest from the listed and put it in the unlisted. And also based on the analysis we've done, there's actually risk return benefits to having a 30, 70 listed, unlisted blend. Mary, we were talking about before the call, all your clients are having capital calls for their LDI holdings at the moment, and they're probably going, oh, I can't take my money out of my infrastructure. Well, if you had some listed sitting alongside that, you've got ready liquidity there. I think it ticks a lot of boxes for me. There's lots of exciting developments going on in the listed infrastructure space as well. Just because of the listed stuff, you'd be owning the infrastructure companies, what, like a sort of an Iberdrola or a Scottish and Southern Power sort of thing, rather than the kind of listed investment trust like a John Lang or something like that. Yeah, we'd be talking about owning stocks in the companies of exactly the ones you mentioned there. We have done some research on investment trust, but it's not something we've got super comfortable on yet, but it is something we keep an eye on. How should our listeners think about, so you've mentioned all of the new and quite exciting sounding areas and you can get slightly, I guess, boosted returns if you get a bit more involved in the construction and some of those areas are very specialist. You also talked about some of those specialist funds that focus only in that area being potentially relatively small, a little bit more concentrated than the more traditional infrastructure funds. How should we think about the difference between or I guess help people think about how they would choose between the specialist approach, the broader approach? Because presumably a good traditional infrastructure fund is still going to be fishing in these new areas. So you're going to get some exposure, but presumably slightly different dynamic there. It's actually a really hard question to answer because in my view, there's really no correct way to access infrastructure as long as you're accessing it with the right manager. Really depends on each individual investor's preferences. So how concerned are you about climate risk? How concerned are you about the diversification of your fund? And there's loads of merit in investing with a traditional infrastructure manager who's got really robust net zero pathways in place for all of their assets. They're on that decarbonization journey. And I think those funds that are well-placed, get on that journey early and do it well, are going to outperform compared to their peers. But there is slightly more climate risk associated with that fund compared to taking an infrastructure 2.0 or a sustainable infrastructure approach. If you as an investor are prepared to bear that climate risk and think that your manager is well-placed, then that's a great investment for you. If you're slightly more concerned about climate risk, you don't want that in your portfolio or you have higher exposure to climate risk elsewhere in the portfolio, then sustainable infrastructure fits really well. You're going to do well if you find the managers who's working with those good counterparties to construct the assets, has a well-diversified pool of assets, is looking in lots of different areas. Once again, if I was given a blank sheet of paper to advise to an investor, I'd say pick one of each, pick the best traditional manager, pick your favorite sustainable manager, and then have a blended approach because you're going to have the exposure to the upside of the manager decarbonizing its assets well, but you're also kind of mitigating your climate risk by spreading between the two approaches. So that would be my preferred approach, but I appreciate not every client can do that because sometimes you've got governance issues or just don't have the capital to be able to split it between those two holdings. Are you seeing enough managers then on the sustainable side who have the skill set to sort of analyze all the, because these assets you've mentioned are sort of quite vastly different when you think about it. You put them all under this sort of big bracket of digitization and electrification, but you're talking about power assets like wind farms, you're talking 
I think you mentioned data centers, fiber broadband. I know infrastructure normally is pretty varied, isn't it? But there's a lot of different skill sets there. Are you seeing managers who are bringing all that together and be able to deploy it in a diversified way? Or are you favoring more kind of specialists who can do each one to a high standard? I think we're seeing more and more managers coming to the market. And it is a huge part of my job, Andy Jacobson, who's head of real assets and our team to do the due diligence on those managers to make sure they're not just talking the talk and walking the walk. And at the moment, we have quite a skinny buy list for managers in this area for that reason. We buy rate one dedicated renewables manager. We've really managed to convince ourselves that they are specialists in this space. They have a long history of investing in renewables since the early 2000s, a really deep team, and they really know their stuff. And they've run a number of closed-ended funds, recently launched an open-ended fund in the space and have that track record, which meant we could get comfortable with them. And then we've got another manager who's a bit more diversified. They are doing the fiber, the data centers, the renewables, they're in the ferry asset that I talked about earlier. And they're quite a deep team. They've got that track record and they're hiring in experts in each of those areas as they add the assets. And they may do a co-investment in their fund alongside a specialist manager. So they're getting exposure to their expertise and their knowledge as well. And that's something we really like. But it is a little bit of a minefield now with just making sure you are comfortable with those managers, because as you say, Dan, it is really varied and you want to make sure they have the expertise on their team. They have the track record and maybe where they don't have the expertise, they're looking to hire or they're partnering with experts in each part of the market. And just really quickly on the geography there. So are we talking, is the scope generally UK for all this stuff or is it global or Europe? That's a really good question, Dan. And I should have said it. <laughs> we do prefer a global approach, especially when we're talking about the energy markets. Different geographies, their power price is driven by different fuel sources. So in some areas, the power price is very correlated to coal. In other places, very correlated to gas. Other places, very correlated to oil. So especially when you have more exposure to the energy prices, there's a lot of these infrastructure 2.0 assets. It's really important to get that global diversification. So we do tend to prefer global focus managers, primarily with a bit more of a focus on the OECD, but we do see some more emerging markets in there as well. But yeah, we do tend to prefer the global managers. That's interesting. So emerging markets, just to pick up on that point. So presumably we've got managers who invest on a global basis who have started to look a bit more broadly and look at emerging markets. What sort of opportunities are they seeing and how excited are they about where that could go next? Or is it really just an area that's developing quite slowly and so it's going to be fairly sporadic for a long time? I think it is going to be in that more sporadic bucket. And when we think about infrastructure, as I mentioned right at the start, is one of the things that we care about is those cash flows, those security of the cash flows and the high barriers to entry. So what the managers are doing is they're looking at the counterparties they're able to work with in those emerging markets. One example we see is a manager has gone out and built a solar farm in an emerging market and their counterparty is the government. So they're selling the power to the government. So they're really comfortable with the quality of the cash flow there. And they've got one of those power purchase agreements with the government where they're selling it for 10 years at a fixed price index to inflation. And it's sort of thinking, how can you access this market, but still get the security of the cash flows, get the resilient cash flows and the defensive characteristics that infrastructure investors are looking for. And I think over time, that business model is going to become more and more proven. And as bigger corporate, stronger counterparties emerge in those emerging markets, we're going to start seeing the managers come in. And when we talk about net zero and sustainability, the emerging markets is something that does I find, get left out of that conversation. So making sure that they're on the decarbonization journey as well, and they're going to hit net zero by 2050 is really important. So the managers who are going there and doing that work are really important. 
it's a good sort of little mental model you sketched out there for how we should think about infrastructure assets generally. So I think you were saying high barriers to entry, stable cash flows, kind of resilient cash flows is kind of roughly the things you're looking at. And I guess you can apply that to a lot of different things. One thing that I've been thinking about a bit recently is charging networks for electric cars. We've got a hybrid and we're thinking about getting a fully electric one. So we're always looking at, especially on long journeys, like are there charging points? Is that something that's forming some of these strategies or not at the moment? It is. Um, it's probably in that more value add, potentially core plus area that isn't in most of our buy rated managers portfolios. And it's for a similar reason to what we were alluding to earlier with renewables is that the economics isn't really mapped out there. How is your counterparty? How can you ensure you get those resilient cash flows? How can you get a monopolistic position? If I put my electric vehicle charging thing here, how do I know someone's not going to put another station there? And it's working out how can you get those infrastructure characteristics. And I think in two to three years time, we will see that coming more into portfolios as it is an important part of the transition, but it is a little bit more value add. And I'm an electric vehicle owner as well. And I'm constantly frustrated by how poor the infrastructure is in the UK for electric vehicle charging. So I hope more managers do jump on it soon and start to develop those networks. I can see it's difficult, actually, because we do a bit of driving in Europe and like in France, and it's just quite fragmented. So you need like five or six different logins to different providers, and none of them have a dominant position. And so you can see it's not ideal there because it feels like it's a bit of a land grab. And I think I read about some sort of SPACs that were being set up to try and and that obviously sounds a bit frothy to anyone talking about SPACs. So people are just trying to flood capital in to try and get that dominant position, but it's not clear who's going to get it. And it does feel a bit haphazard, a bit flaky at the moment. So I guess it doesn't quite meet those tests yet. Whereas if one dominant provider were to sort of emerge and it just had this really reliable amount of usage going through it, then I guess you could make a case for it. And as soon as those economics do become workable, I do think it will be something that those managers start to jump on. But today it is in that more value add space um, that we don't see a huge amount of it in most of the funds we put forward to clients. Should we talk just, I mean, James, your role is obviously not only on infrastructure, although you've, you've clearly done a lot of work in that area at the moment. Should we just talk a little bit, taking a step back in real assets more generally? So if we were to be comparing, I suppose, should I put my money in infrastructure, UK property, long lease? global property. What are the sort of trends and latest thoughts that we're having in those other areas? It's a really interesting time in real assets right now. And I would tend to say we're more cautious on UK property, both core and long lease, definitely than we are on infrastructure. In particular, in UK property at the moment, we're expecting a bit of a market adjustment and some negative performance in the next three to six months, primarily as we're seeing gilt yields rise so much in the UK. And there's not been the same outward movement in UK property yields. And we're expecting that that rise in bond yields is going to be reflected in the coming months in UK property. And that's going to see some negative performance in the short term. Longer term, it's probably worth saying that I am quite comfortable with the fundamentals of UK property assets. Rent collections levels are high, vacancy levels are low, and we're seeing a lot of investor interest in UK property, particularly for the pound being so cheap right now. We're seeing a lot of overseas investors putting their money in. Long lease property is, is definitely well positioned with a lot of contractual inflation linkage and with inflation running so high, I think those assets stand to do quite well. However, at a structural fund level, there are some concerns as well. For most of the institutional funds we look at, a large proportion of their investor base is DB pension scheme investors. And the good news for DB pension scheme investors is that they're so well-funded right now, they're selling out of their liquid assets. But for the investors who are still in those funds, that isn't so great for them. And we're expecting that a couple of those funds may start to 
see redemption pressures and potentially start to defer redemptions. At a structural level, I am quite cautious on UK property right now, as I think we may start to see some issues come to light. But that's probably a whole other podcast on the UK property market and fund structures. Thinking about global property, I'm slightly more positive, probably still not to the same extent as infrastructure, but global property funds tend to have a much more diversified investor base. They've not got just loads of one type of investor in there. So the movements and the actions of one investor type doesn't impact the fund to the same extent. So at a structural level, I'm much more comfortable. Similarly, global property markets tend to be quite asynchronized and returns are driven by local factors rather than macro trends. So for example, in 2016, Brexit wasn't great for the UK property market, but that didn't have as much of an effect on the global market. So that's definitely a positive as well. But having said that, seeing rates rise across the board globally, it's hard to say that that's not going to have a negative impact on returns, at least in the short term. But I do think for investors with the scope to make an allocation to a broad portfolio of liquids, I do think there is a place for global property there, particularly from the diversification benefits we've seen over the last year with property being one of the few asset classes to deliver positive performance, all other markets are falling. And also there is a level of at least implicit inflation leakage in most property assets. And I think that also is great for investors today with inflation running so high globally. Lots to reflect on there. I think you're saying for sort of ongoing growthy investors, there's a lot to like and a lot of things to look at, potentially some sort of technical challenges around what some of the local UK investors of the past are doing with their holdings. And you could see outflows in that particular area. I think that's the summary. UK property, potentially more cautious for investors who are still looking to allocate to liquids. There's definitely opportunities with the right managers in global property. But I think as a real assets team at LCP, we'd probably say infrastructure is where we're most positive right now. Cool. On a slightly different note, James, we wanted to ask, I mean, obviously you're someone who spends a lot of time looking at managers, looking at new ideas, looking at all sorts of different funds. Where would you say, what are examples of sort of real innovation happening in the investment fund industry right now? I think the real innovation is happening in the DC space, particularly around real assets. All the DC investors we're talking to are crying out, how can I get real assets into the portfolio? And historically, it's been a bit of a minefield, really difficult to do. But I think there's a lot of innovation coming through there with new fund vehicles like the LTAF and managers thinking a bit harder about this. And something we're starting to see come to market are multi-real asset funds, which are funds that blend together infrastructure, property, timberland, natural capital, and bring them all together in one structure and then have some of the listed assets as well to provide that liquidity that DC investors need. And the other great thing about these is because DC investors are so tuned into the ESG discussion, and that is more important to them. A lot of the infrastructure is the infrastructure 2.0, the sustainable infrastructure. The Timberland is obviously the natural capital. So a lot of these multi-real assets funds tend to have a climate or a sustainability tilt, which I think is great. A lot of these funds are conceptual, and we're, but we're seeing them come to market in the next couple of quarters or so. And I think as they grow and get traction, that's a really great opportunity for DC investors to get exposure to a broad range of real assets. But obviously, it's not just the DC investors as well. For those smaller investors who probably don't have the governance budgets to access infrastructure, property, timberland on a standalone basis, it's a one-stop shop to get exposure to a whole raft of real assets quite quickly and in a low governance solution. I think that's really exciting particularly as DC investors have been asking for exposure to liquids for so long, to be able to finally give that to them is going to be a real win for those fund managers. Fantastic. Yeah, very exciting time in that case. 
And James, apart from the launch of those funds that you've just been referring to, what are the sort of key things you're looking out for in the next year or two? I think it is the new technologies and infrastructure. And Dan touched on one of them earlier. So the EV charging. So all of these things that we're thinking about that are going to be really essential to the net zero transition and the decarbonization of the economy, but are still quite emerging today. The economies aren't mapped out. So hydrogen power, I've mentioned carbon capture and storage. So taking carbon out of the atmosphere to start to bring the level of carbon down. These are all technologies that scientists, infrastructure managers are working on. We're trying to get the economics mapped out. And in the next two to three years, that's going to become well known and they're going to start to come into these funds. And I think the managers who invest in the right companies early enough and manage them in the correct way are really going to deliver really great returns for our investors. Nice. So, James, I think you answered this question earlier, but you're going to have to repeat yourself. We always ask these questions at the end of our episodes. So as we wrap up, what's the one thing that you want listeners to take away from this? The discussion about emissions in infrastructure isn't just low emissions good, high emissions bad. It's a lot more nuanced about that and that emissions aren't necessarily high investment risk today. They pose a real opportunity for investors who are well placed and manage them in the right way. You know, that's a really good thinking point, isn't it? I'm glad that's starting to sort of come through. And I think I'm trying to champion that kind of thinking as well when you're talking to clients and things, because that's the more nuanced take on it, isn't it? What do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing generally? It's probably going to be quite ironic, given that I've talked about lots of complex, hard to understand things today. But I sometimes think that we don't place enough emphasis on simplicity and that sometimes a simple answer is the best answer and we might get carried away thinking about complicated derivatives and options strategies when actually doing something like just holding cash in your portfolio is the right thing to do in that scenario just sometimes the simple answer is the best one no i really like that i'm sure we've all sat in around meeting rooms i'm sure most of the listeners have done this too and you go round and round in circles on the most complicated thing and someone says guys why are we not just doing this and everyone's got kind of head in hands moment where you're <laughs> yeah. like yeah of course that's the answer <laughs> but there's a behavioral thing isn't there just to tease it out a little bit more i've thought about this a lot and i've read some great blogs on this from various writers but i think we're drawn to complexity that's the issue because it seems like it must be better because it was more work or it seems like a simple answer isn't good enough because it must have been not been thorough enough or we didn't put enough hours in sort of thing or people joke about wanting the powerpoint to sort of thud when you land on the table but that, that is almost a very real thing if you turned up to a client with a one-page thing then you would feel or you might even be given short shrift so yeah i think it's underestimated how deep it's embedded is sort of our need to make things more complicated and that, that comes up all the time final question james any recommendations for good books or podcasts tv shows that sort of thing Something I definitely recommend to, and definitely our new grads who are just starting this week at LCP for people who are new to investing is The Big Short by Michael Lewis. Not only is it a really interesting book and potentially an even better movie, but it also highlights why it's so important that investment professionals like us do our due diligence on investments before we recommend them to clients. Love that. We did a book review really early on, didn't we, we, Dan? So we can definitely bring that one back out and link to it. I think it's aged pretty well as well. I mean, it's kind of, the book is obviously, well, the book must be a decade old. The movie, I think, is nearly a decade old. But the movie was, is Ryan Gosling in the movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the Deutsche Bank. That's right. CDS sales guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's got some good characters in it, hasn't it? It stands up pretty well, I think. Agreed. Absolutely. Good stuff. All right, brilliant. James, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, James. Oh,
podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.